Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. Monheimmicrophones.com. In 1943, founder William Green purchased McCoy Feed and Coal Company, and Primex Garden Center was born. Primex Garden Center is now in its fourth generation of green family ownership. They offer a wide selection of organic and conventional garden solutions, in addition to two fully stocked tropical houseplant greenhouses, along with annuals, perennials, trees, and shrubs. As the gardener's resource since 1943, Primex seeks to nurture both plants and people through quality, care, compassion, and community. Making your lives greener makes theirs brighter. Primex Garden Center is located at 435 West Glenside Avenue in Glenside, Pennsylvania. This podcast is being recorded on April 14th, 2023. Hannah Lewis is the author of Mini Forest Revolution, Using the Milwaukee Method to Rapidly Rewild the World, published in June 2022 by Chelsea Green. A French translation of the book was released in January 2023 by Editions Urels in France. Hannah has a Master of Science in Sustainable Agriculture and Sociology from Iowa State University and a Bachelor of Art in Environmental Studies from Middlebury College. She lives in Minneapolis, where she works for the nonprofit Renewing the Countryside to build sustainable local and regional food systems and to plant mini forests. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Hannah. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we're interested to find out a little bit, first thing, about your background and how you wound up working with the Milwaukee method of planting trees. And, you know, what was your early beginnings of getting into the green world and that whole influence? Yeah, I've been thinking about the environment for as long as I can remember. So high school, at least. And then in college, I majored in environmental studies. and. I took an environmental policy course that what was interesting to me about that was how much we talked about agriculture and agriculture policy, because that has such a huge impact on the environment. That I think it was that class actually that led me in the direction of sustainable agriculture. So in college, I got a sustainable agriculture minor and then have stayed in that field pretty much fairly consistently throughout my career. I went to Iowa State University 
for a master's in sustainable agriculture and sociology. It was a co-major actually. And then eventually moved to DC with my partner. We had children that were born and twins actually in 2014. And that was also the year that one of the IPCC reports came out on climate change. So when one of those reports comes out, you get a little flurry of news articles. And I, I actually had not been thinking that much about climate change up until that point. And I think the fact of having newborn twins and hearing what the scientists were saying about climate change and where we were headed really, really woke me up. I, I mean, I was already, as I said, you know, thinking about the environment for my whole career and my as long as I can remember. But Climate change wasn't a part of that until 2014. It's kind of an interesting thing to ruminate on how, uh, when and how and where did we get the whack to the back of the head about the climate catastrophe unfolding. Yeah, um, absolutely. And actually from doing the podcast, I learned to call it the, the unfolding climate catastrophe. Climate change is uh, that, that ship has sailed. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And your your background is is really amazing. And of course, Iowa State University has a fabulous program. I mean, they're known all around the world for their work. And I think that's just really wonderful that you're part of that legacy. Yeah. I loved being at Iowa State. And one thing that was a big deal, there was a lot of different initiatives within the university. So there was a graduate program in sustainable agriculture, but there was also the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture based at the university. And that helped create a lot of connections throughout the state of Iowa, people working in extension or resource conservation and development or you know other organizations and connecting people to each other to build local and regional food systems and improve the conservation value of farming practices. One term I lifted uh, is regenerative agriculture, which would seem to be the, the extension of sustainable agriculture. And I, I, I lifted that and the last five years or so since I had my whack to the back of the head, I've tried to refer to myself as a regenerative arborist. But let's talk about the mini forest revolution. Uh, it's a great book. It's a timely book. Eva and I feel like this is going to be the year for the Miyawaki method, or at least the inaugural year and then incredible decades to follow. It offers a lot of possibilities for those of us that work with plants. So that would be horticulturists and arborists and urban foresters and growers. To set some context, can you first define biodiversity and how it plays into the importance of tiny forests? Yeah, well, biodiversity is really the number of different species in an area. So if we're talking about the world or even a smaller area, you can measure the biodiversity counting the different kinds of the different species that are present. And biodiversity, I think scientists have been focusing on that idea a lot more in the past few decades and sort of focusing on how much species interact with each other. Our tendency is to think about things in isolation. But when, when we think about biodiversity, we think about the food web, for example. Birds can't live without insects and insects can't live without the plants that they eat. And so there's this food web that the more you look at it, the more connections you see and the more you see how each species depends on so many others. So 
you know, can go back to birds. Not It's not just insects, but it's also the trees they live in. And then for the trees, it's the microorganisms in the soil that are helping them draw up water and nutrients. And the trees are exchanging carbon that they produce through photosynthesis down to the micronutrients, microorganisms. So all of these kinds of connections help each one of those individuals and organisms and species do well. And so when we have an extreme example like a monoculture, you miss out on all of the interactions that should normally be in a system to make everything a little bit more healthy. And so by contrast, a mini forest is really trying to mimic nature and nature loves diversity. Nature nature works best that way. So when we create a mini forest, we're basically saying, okay, if nature was left alone in this particular site, what would it be doing? And let's do our best to recreate that. And so by that standard, you're going to get a lot of biodiversity. I like in chapter seven, you just have a line in here uh, discussing biodiversity and productivity. You said, every living being is made out of carbon that was once in the atmosphere and will eventually cycle back through to the atmosphere. Very existential, very beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This whole thing reminds me of going back a couple years, about a decade, when someone came up with the term, the butterfly effect, that whole thing that we're all interactive with one another. What we do affects everybody else. And what you were saying about the insects and and the trees and the microbes in the soil, That all is part of that whole idea that we're all affecting one another all the time. So there needs to be a diversity. Without diversity, we actually collapse as as a human group, we collapse. But so do other systems too. They collapse if there's more of a monoculture. Well, I think, uh, you know, even in thinking in biodiversity, one of the people I got to talk to was Marc-Andre Salos, who is a French biologist, and he really focuses on microorganisms. And so, you know, if you if you look at any one person, it looks like there's just one species there, you know, just one human species and that's it. But actually, each of us is a has a microcosm of organisms within us. And I think there's that statistic that we have more cells of different microorganisms in our bodies than we do of our own cells. <laughs> I love it. And and so, yeah, even, even when you look at something and it seems like it's just one thing, <laughs> it's actually a multitude of things and we need the microorganisms in our gut to just to simply help us digest our food. And if we didn't have them, then we'd be stuck. So uh, if I'm right, Akira Miyawaki predeceased before you uh, got your interest in in tiny forests. What can you tell us about him? Well, actually, he was still alive when I was writing the book, but he was very, very ill. I I reached out to some of his colleagues to see if there would be a way for me to talk to him, but he was was not well. Mm -hmm. And then he passed away, well, just before, actually, just as I was finishing the manuscript. But I really, really loved getting to know him. It was a huge joy of doing the research for the book was not getting to know him, obviously, through meeting him, but through reading all the things that he's written. He's He was prolific and he was interviewed a lot. And so I just really got to absorb his philosophy and his, and his personality a bit and also through talking to people that knew him. So he started his career 
as a weed ecologist. He went to Germany early in his career. He was invited to go there and study with a scientist there. And, and that's where he discovered the idea of potential natural vegetation, which is sort of the big picture idea for, for the mini forests that he was planting, or he didn't call them mini forests, but the forests that he was planting. And the, the idea of potential natural vegetation is what, what is the ecological potential of any piece of land? And so it's, it depends on the soil and the topography and the climate. So if you have like a riparian area that has kind of wetter soils, the vegetation community will be different there than it will be on higher ground that's with more well-drained soils or different than what you'll find on a high at a higher elevation. Yeah, so it's looking at that idea of potential natural vegetation. He learned that in Germany, he came back and that really was his guiding idea for all the work that he did. So he his career was about 50 years long. One other thing he did early in his career was to map out the vegetation of the entire Japanese archipelago. And he did this with a team of researchers uh, that were working with him. But they were again looking at how does vegetation community relate to soils, topography, climate, and disturbance, both human disturbance and natural disturbance. So that again informed the reforestation work that he would do. So a couple other interesting things he planted in 3,000 places around the world throughout his career. Most of that was in Japan, but in more than a dozen other countries around the world. And he was still planting as long as he possibly could well, well through his 80s. So yeah, he was prolific and he was a citizen of the world. He was deeply engaged in the world and connecting with people. I thought it was fascinating too that he grew up in a neighborhood post-World War II that wasn't that far from where the nuclear bombs were dropped, right? So he must have, as a young person, seen a lot of devastation. And there's a little bit of a weird, not irony, but just this, he, he, he could see what devastation could look like. And look, moving forward, look what he did, perhaps somehow influenced by the things he saw as a young person. Yeah, absolutely. He was he was a child of the 20th century. Um, and so not only did he see the devastation of the war, but also the post-war development that happened in Japan, which was wonderful, a beautiful thing to sort of a phoenix rising out of the ashes in one sense. But at the same time, it was an industrial development. And so he saw the downside of that in terms of pollution and deforestation. And he was, yeah, he was observing all of that in real time. I think that's really fascinating. I was reading an article the other day about the the only surviving trees from Hiroshima were the ginkgos. Mm. And I thought to myself, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe that's why they are so almost foolproof when it comes to living in really toxic environments. And I can imagine what he might have thought when he saw something survive an area that had been devastated and how you can take that information and translate it into new information and how that can be applied and to help the environment over the long run. And of course, I'm so fascinated with the idea of planting trees and how many places he planted. It just blows your mind when you think about the millions of trees that he must have planted as he was going across the world doing his good deeds of planting. The book, I liked the way you kind of covered 
several projects, small scale, large scale, and one in particular introduces us to Adib Dada, a trained architect working in Beirut. And I wonder if you could share his story with our listeners. Yeah, I really appreciate his story. He studied biomimicry as an architect. And can you tell us what biomimicry, I never heard that term till I saw it in your book. <laughs> well, it's basically using nature as a guide for human human designs. So he had he had a really nature focus for his in his as an architect. And one thing that that bothered him in Beirut was the Beirut River, which had been paved in 1968 to avoid flooding of the flood banks once the flood banks were, you know, getting developed. So the same thing happened in LA and other cities. And so, you know, the river was turned into a cement chute through the city. Yeah. And in his view, that was the death of the river, was that channelization. So he was thinking about how to do some eco-restoration along the riverbanks, like maybe turning certain areas into seasonal wetlands. He was brainstorming and also trying to talk to the general public about environment in the city and ecosystem services and how important they are. And then he saw... Shubendu's video talking about the Miyawaki method. And that seemed like a, a good approach for this. So he invited Shubendu to Beirut to lead a planting effort. And that was getting some traction because he, one thing he said to me was, you know, having conferences and presentations and slideshows and all of this, it wasn't really impacting people. They weren't, they weren't responding in a way that led to action and that led to improving green space in the city. But planting a forest was actually a, a really good way to start a conversation and get people engaged and get them to start to notice that this land has the potential to support a forest. And we have spaces in the city where we can invite nature in. And, and here's how it feels to be close to nature because there is about one square meter per capita of green space in that city. So so just I'll just name a couple other projects that he's done after he did what he called Beirut's Riverless Forest. So you can see that he's also using language to start a conversation and inviting people to, to think about nature and, and urbanization. So in 2020, there was a nitrate explosion at the port of Beirut that killed 250 people and destroyed thousands of homes and businesses and traumatized people generally. So on the one-year anniversary of that explosion, Adib and his team planted a what they called a remembrance forest, and they invited people, families who had lost loved ones in the blast to participate in that planting. And they wrote the name of each person that had been lost and planted those names with, with each of the trees that were planted. So the idea was that not only can we heal the land, but when we do that, we have this connection with nature that's healing to us. And I think that is a really important idea related to the, the mini forest idea generally, is that this is something people can do to heal the land and to heal our communities and heal us as individuals as well through a, a better connection to nature. You know, the Planet Trillion Trees podcast is produced in and around the Philadelphia area. And uh, we're classified as the poorest large city in the country. And we have some really serious issues in areas where 
low-income families do not have green around them. And so we wanted to know, you know, Hal and I talk about this all the time, how do you make a green area for people who are in these impoverished areas that don't really have what people have in a more wealthy area? It's, you know, it's disturbing to see those statistics and to know that they yeah. exist within our city. So how yeah. can we change that by using these mini forests? Well, I live in Minneapolis just since last September, and I'm working for an organization with a team of people that is working in a neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota, that has really low tree canopy equity. So it's about 23% canopy coverage in this neighborhood compared to, I think, about 35% overall for the city. And this is a a, a lower income neighborhood. And yeah, you can see when when you go through, there's there's not there's not a lot of green space. So we want to plant mini forests in this neighborhood. And we're working with a local community organization and, and then also with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Environmental Justice Initiative. And we're doing a process of in community engagement at the beginning. So it's really important to, I think, to the people in the neighborhoods that they get to participate in these conversations about where the green space might be and how it's planted and how they would interact with it. And so we have a survey where we're asking people what priority areas they would have for a mini forest. What is a mini forest? What are the benefits of it? Why you would want it? How people value green space? So we're just trying to start the conversation on a very local level to say, here's something that you may want to do and what are your thoughts on how it should be done and how you'd like to engage with it. And so ideally, we're hoping to plant this fall a forest, a mini forest, and then that'll involve a community planting festival and then community-based maintenance over the first couple of years for the mini forest. But then also importantly, an ongoing community engagement effort so that we can work with maybe a school or a church group or some other community group to do forest-based education so that there's an ongoing relationship between the mini forest and the communities. I think people are not used to seeing natural vegetation in a city. You know, people are used to seeing street trees, like you were talking about earlier, ginkgo, not native, gardens. You know, everybody appreciates these kinds of decorative landscaping things that we see all around us. But when you see a natural area in the middle of the city, people are not accustomed to it. And they might think, who forgot to mow that area? So I think with a mini forest, you have the opportunity to have people knowing what it's all about and taking pride in it because they help plant it. And also learning from it and connecting from it on a regular basis through sort of structured engagement activities. I think that's yeah. that's really a, a good thing to do a charrette, or as they might call it charrette, uh, with the communities. Yeah. And I know um, Hal has Hal has been very active in talking with the people who did the Philly Tree Plan, and. That's something that they've done a lot of. I think they, they reached out to, what, 25,000 people? Yeah, they did a great job with that. For the program. So they haven't instituted anything yet but they, because the plan just came out. But the idea of what you're talking about is what they have already done, very much mm-hmm. like in the stages where you are. So um, I think that that really makes a huge difference when you're engaging with the community, you get buy-in. And that's mm-hmm. critical for successful 
planting. And I think you're right that people are afraid of, or when they see a place that is planted heavily, they're surprised, they're shocked, they're it's, it's another thing that they're not used to seeing. And how do they react to that? How do they respond to that? That's going to be really fabulous to see. Well, there's that yeah. ground level issue with how humans perceive vegetation. I was mostly a lousy college student, but the one thing I did push through was a, in Chicago was just assessing and researching and asking people how they saw Chicago's parkway system. So Chicago does a great job with these eight to 10 foot wide strips that are planted with trees and they're usually just a tree and turf. But it was interesting how people weren't seeing it and just oblivious to the fact that there was a tree and some grass. Mm. And similar to that, we've all heard those stories about, you know, someone converts their front yard to pollinators and you know, dogwood and redbud and native trees, and then get served with an ordinance for not yeah. mowing your lawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I guess uh, tiny forests will need to continue to market the upside of it and help people see. You know, get them close and say, okay, it looks unkept, but let's count the butterflies here. You know, let's count yeah. what's going on. I think when you can get kids in from the beginning, they'll understand it because they're not sort of habituated as much to something else. So, right. and then, and kids, kids love trees and bugs and making forts. And so, and then when they're the ones that planted it, that's like a big source of pride as well. So yeah, that's why I think that the projects like in the Netherlands, they've planted 230 mini forests and each one throughout the country, each one in association with a school. And it's exactly that. This, the, the kids at that school planted it, and then their teachers are provided with curriculum, you know, forest-based curriculum to continue to interact with that forest throughout their schooling there. I think the strong thing there is, and we saw in our own community years ago when we worked with our elementary school, the students in sense of ownership when they plan something. They want to come back and look at something. You know how you go back to your high school or your elementary school and you look at school and you say it doesn't look the same when I went, you know, when I went went here, you know, it looks smaller or something. But then they see the tree that they plant and they say, wow, look how big it got. Yeah. You know, or I can't believe how big it is. Um, Mm -hmm. To be able to see something that they actually had their hands on and were part of is you can't replace it with anything. Yeah. It's 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 such a powerful tool. there's sort of this parallel too between the young forests that are growing and the young children that right. are growing right beside them. Yes. That's, yeah. that's a really good point. And the podcast guests that we've had, you know, we'll often find out what were your earliest experiences. And so often, I mean, it's, they're three years old on their hands and knees at, at grandma's house near the creek. Mm-hmm. And the early exposure often defines who they become uh, in horticulture and forestry uh, down the line. Yeah. And there's stewardship too for the community when they have that richness, even like somebody picking vegetables with their, their parents in the garden, that translates into a, a community member who can see maybe a loss of food, for example, or the lack of gardening, for example. And somebody who, who really appreciates eating vegetables too. Right, exactly. They know how good they taste when they're Still yeah, picking it right from the plant. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating discussion. And, you know, you can take what our cities struggle with in terms of 
crime and, and litter and deteriorating infrastructure. And you can really kind of expand that worldwide in terms of our disassociation with nature. And that's why we are continuing to mine and uh, use up resources is because mm-hmm. we're, we're detached. We don't know what we're seeing and what we're doing. I thought it was interesting, Hannah, that you got to write your book or most of it uh, while living in France. And uh, I'm romanticizing that, like, you know, you at a cafe with a fresh croissant and uh, <laughs> cranking it out while the world was in chaos. Yes. <laughs> Did you find Europeans have a different perspective on the climate crisis? Not. I'm, I'm actually going to say not necessarily. Okay. Europeans have a lower carbon footprint than Americans. Mm. So there is a certain way of living that is, yeah, is less consumptive. Okay. Um, And and in France, there's a ministry, I think it's an interagency ministry of biodiversity. We don't have that here. There's also the, the ministry of ecological transition, which I think is basically their environment ministry, but... I like the way it's worded in sort of an action, you know, here's something that we're in the middle of ecological transition. I think there's pretty good leadership at the national level, probably in in France and other European countries. And I think potentially less, less extreme resistance to environmental protection compared to here. But I guess I feel like there's a similar level, at least in the people that I interacted with, of people not seeming to incorporate the environmental catastrophe into their daily thinking. And so therefore not necessarily making the kinds of changes that I think we need to make as individuals as as well as at a collective level and a government level. And then obviously then there's the portion of the population that is really aware that, they, like you said earlier, the, the block has hit them over the head about how serious this problem is and are really, you know, trying to figure out how to take action about it. For example, the people that were doing the mini forest, but, you know, people take action in different kinds of ways. So to me, just in daily interactions, I feel like it's similar, uh, just a range of responses. Some people who are really not thinking about it, not concerned about it, and some people who are very, very sensitive and aware. Yeah. Do you think that the people who are not really thinking about it on a daily basis are either the kind of people living day to day? Or do you think that that maybe there's crisis in their own lives that they they can't even think about? They can't even think about another crisis or catastrophe? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, because I I don't know. I I think maybe it's easy to compartmentalize our awarenesses of things. So you can read and hear and just really know that there's a climate catastrophe going on. And you can, I think you can sort of section that off and just carry on with your life. Um, And I don't know. (laughs) That's an interesting thought because, you know, trees compartmentalize their diseases. I wonder Mm. if people are taking a lead from the trees and walling off that section of their mind so they don't have to think about it. I mean, I'm comparing people to myself and I may be a little bit on the obsessive side in terms of uh, you know, I, I avoid driving whenever I possibly can. And I avoid using the dryer since I know I can hang my clothes on the rack. And that works just as well, even though it takes a bit more time. 
So there's all these tiny little things that I that I fuss about that people don't universally fuss about. So I'm I am also kind of comparing myself to the people around me. But anyway, yeah, I I don't I don't see a huge difference between the people that I interacted with in Europe versus here in that way. It's another meta topic because it's making me realize I understand the climate crisis probably a hundred times better than I did even five years ago. And I'm also blessed with the opportunity to invest in solar and heat pump and ride my bicycle and use public transportation. But, you know, Eva brought up a good point. You know, so many people worldwide eating and staying warm Mm-hmm. or staying cool and staying healthy and keeping your children healthy, that's all got to take priority. So, uh, yeah. Well, ironically, though, those are the folks that are also having the lowest carbon footprint. So it's yeah, those of us who have the means to consume more and then we just do because we can. And um, that's... That's a, a good, a really good point. You know, I think, I think back to my grandparents and when they put out their trash at the end of the week, it was a container of cinders that was scraped from the bottom of their wood-burning stove and their coal stove in the, ba- in the you know the coal heater. And and I thought, how can they only have that? Well, we at home have a, you know two big trash cans. And you know, my grandmother said, you just don't make that kind of trash. You just don't make that kind of trash. And that that was her message. I mean, it was everything needs to be done in the right proportion. That was her philosophy. You know, old European, that was her way. I mean, she never wasted anything, nothing, you know? Yeah, I mean, so going back to this little narrow, tiny thing of drying your clothes, that is maybe a difference between Europeans and Americans, but only in the sense that we are used to a particular way of doing things. I think in the U.S., people have dryers and they don't necessarily think about drying on the rack, but they're not as common in other countries where I've seen them. So France, you don't necessarily use a dryer. Other places, Australia, other developed countries. So it's there, so I use it. And that's the way I'm used to doing it. And I can't think of any other way to do it versus... Yeah. So there's certain kind of society-wide things that are just in place and then people respond to that because that's how it is. I want to leave a little time to talk about your work as the compiler of that uh, compendium. Compendium, Compendium. thank you. (laughs) But if you'll indulge me, uh, Hannah, I do want to read a portion from your book because we're the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast. And even since starting the podcast and and using that name, you know, that that has new meaning to me and uh, more nuanced understanding. You quote Thomas Crowther in the book in chapter seven. This isn't him, but he's about to, you're about to quote him, but you say, um, the danger of focusing too much on trees is fourfold. One, as Miyawaki emphasized, it is not only trees that make up a multi-layer natural forest. A managed Douglas fir plantation is not a forest. The second point is planting trees to create new forests, even using the Milwaukee method, is no substitute for protecting existing mature forests. Three, replacing native grasslands with forest is a misplaced effort that damages those ecologically important ecosystems. And four, Planting trees is no substitute for reducing overconsumption, which not only generates greenhouse gas emissions, 
but also further destroys and degrades ecosystems through endless mining of raw materials and disposal of waste on land and in the oceans. And then Crowther says, this view of trees as an easy way out is such a tempting perspective, but it is a real threat to the climate change movement and to the ecosystems that still remain. And he's lamenting that. So that was good. I I appreciated kind of that tight, succinct assessment. And that's gotten a little press in the past year. It was this flurry of let's plant, plant, plant. Uh, and watch, you know, two-thirds of them die, die, die. I guess we, we're all looking for a little uh, stabilization with, with those initiatives. Yeah. Yeah, I think that protecting ecosystems that exist is maybe harder to do because we don't see them when they're being destroyed. And, and then also, I think we also like action and activity. And so that's what also what the mm-hmm. mini forest appeals to is that we did something, right. we sweat, we worked hard, and we got a fantastic outcome. And that's really satisfying, and, and it's an important thing to be doing. You know, there is the, the oil field expansion in Willow up in Alaska. We won't see it, so it won't be as heartbreaking when it happens. There's, there's the big controversy about Cop City, I think, in what state is that? Georgia, maybe? I can't remember what state, but there's a natural forest, and it's going to be cleared to do a large police facility or something like mm. that. And the local people are really protesting that. So, I mean, I don't know. It seems like you go anywhere and you see trees being cut or ripped yeah. up. When we, we were driving down to Iowa last week, and all the little woody vegetation that was coming up on the side of the highway had just been ripped up and it was neatly piled <laughs> all along. So then I think, oh gosh, we're, we can be planting mini forests till the cows come home, but is it going to make a net difference if we're not protecting what's growing naturally on its own? Yeah. And so I think, I think we really have to have our eyes on, on both balls, you know, and, and be thinking about both and. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think the two of you, you and John Perlin should team up a, uh, forest journey that he wrote and he said the earth was covered with trees we've cut more than half of them down Mm -hmm. and you know the islands in greece were covered in trees and Mm -hmm. what remains are is the erosion that was left behind you know all of that you know the outcropping of rock wasn't normal that was because the trees were removed those kind of things you think about all the time at least i think about them all the time um the idea of destruction like just that little bit of along the roadway, I always wonder why. How come they're clearing? How come they're cutting everything down when they don't they see that there's a hill there that things are going to erode and wash away? Mm-hmm. Don't they see that? Or aren't they aware of that? Don't they understand that engineering process? No, concrete is not going to be the best engineering thing for that area. <laughs> you know, is it going to be hotter and it's going to create hotter environment because it's there along the roadway? All of those things we need to think about. And I think there's some things that we just don't think about. We just act on. And I really commend you for writing this book and bringing this to the forefront for people to use even as a model, as a a book that people can use in a classroom to teach people philosophy, the idea of the mini forest and what it can do, what it can help, things that are lost, things that are gone. And I hope it gets translated into other languages, not just French and English, 
I believe it will be translated into Italian this year. That's wonderful. Great. That's, That's wonderful. great. Something I'm hoping is that I've had a couple of conversations with people about the idea of connecting the Milwaukee method to college, for instance, a college ecology course. And then you have a lab or practical experience that involves either planting a mini forest or doing research in a mini forest that's already been planted on campus. And I think there's a lot of really cool opportunities, especially at the college level in terms of, well, at all school levels. But for each level of education, I think there's an interesting set of possibilities for using mini forests in relation to education and Yeah, my takeaway as an arborist is just that uh, one paradigm that we might break and rethink now is instead of planting the standalone tree on on the college campus, that it would be almost like that mini forest, you know, class of 2023, here's our tiny forest, because anytime on the college campus, which is where, you know, a solid middle class representation is going to be. There's also most likely going to be a lot of turf and there's going to be the mowers and the blowers zipping back and forth, trying to keep big spanses of lawn looking green and and vital because that's the traditional perception of a cozy college campus. Um, We're going to be burning through this interview. I knew it would go quick, Hannah. I did want to ask you about your work at the Biodiversity for a Livable planet or or the organization there. And while you were there, you organized a compendium of scientific and practical findings supporting eco-restoration to address global warming. Tell us about that project. I'm thinking as I read your bio and read the book, like, man, Hannah is uh, boots on the ground in terms of all this research, (laughs) all these scientists and all these papers that you've looked at to see these sometimes not very hopeful scenarios. Yeah. Well, it's Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. So I got to know them in 2016. And so it was it was in that period where I had newborns and I was suddenly really alarmed about the climate catastrophe. So that was where I went, was to Biodiversity for a Livable Climate, because I liked their focus on nature, healthy ecosystems, regulate water cycles, not, you know, obviously draw down uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. But, you know, if you have just a little bit of ecosystem, it draws down a little bit of CO2. (laughs) But if you have a vast and healthy number of ecosystems, you're proportionally drawing down that much CO2. But, But not only that, also you're allowing heavy rains to absorb into the ground and you're holding moisture through droughts longer because of those spongy porous soils that you have in healthy ecosystems. You're regulating temperatures, not only local, locally, but regionally and globally because of evapotranspiration, which, which you know, when, when sunlight touches a leaf, the leaf never gets hot. The leaf transforms that energy into latent heat and releases it back up. So the difference between a vegetated area and a concrete area, which does, it actually absorbs all the sunlight and then radiates it back out into heat. That's a huge, huge, huge change that you can make in one area. So even within a city, you have you have areas that are 10 degrees or more cooler than the areas that are just concrete or asphalt adjacent. So all of these really, really important things that ecosystems do to address the problems that we are facing 
every day, all the time, more and more every year. So anyway, that's what biodiversity for a livable climate focuses on is just conveying that message to the public. And so the compendium project was a way to just say, here's what all these scientists have to say about this general topic and how ecosystems relate to climate. So my job was just to review literature on that general theme, and but we broke it down into smaller themes each every six months when we released a new literature review. So it might have to do with biodiversity connectivity or actually after the pandemic, the relationship between biodiversity and uh, the spread of diseases. So lots of things to say about what healthy ecosystems do to make our lives livable and to make the the planet function in in a way that's comfortable to to everybody to to people to animals to plants so so yeah that was it was it was because i was working there and thinking about all these things that when i discovered the the Milwaukee method it clicked for me in the way it clicked for all the all the people i interviewed in the book Gotcha. Well, that's lovely. For the listener that is hearing about Milwaukee for the first time and uh, ecosystems and biodiversity, what would you like to tell them? What's coming up in the next year? Or is there an organization or institution that someone might want to Google at the end of this interview and just to pursue it further? I think the most accessible website in terms of just getting a feel for these projects is probably the Sugi website. They have a collection of stories and pictures of projects all around the world that are using the Milwaukee method or something similar to restore local ecosystems. Great. And there is a U.S.-based Milwaukee method practitioner based in Seattle, Ethan Bryson. He has naturalurbanforests.com. And then there's the handful of websites of folks in Europe if you Google IVN Nature Education, uh, that's a Dutch website, but they do have an English page that has a lot of information about mini forests. Generally, it has a, a downloadable how-to guide. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, we do great. have that one. Yeah, yeah. We do have that one on our, our okay. on uh, Dan's, Dan's uh, from the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. Bio. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been great. Do you have a favorite tree? Do you have a spirit tree out there in the Midwest or did you leave one behind in France? Or, <laughs> Well, I, 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 I like oak. I, I think I had a, a moment where I just, at some point for no apparent reason, felt a <laughs> strong connection to a particular oak tree when I was on a walk. But I like oaks because they're so ever-present. They're so reliable. They're, they're old. They're big. They make cute acorns. Yeah, they're just... <laughs> feel like a friendly part of the landscape. That's a great answer and a common answer too. Uh, people are connecting with oaks at all levels. So, yeah. well, thank you, Hannah. Yeah, thank you guys. I, I really appreciated your questions and enjoyed the conversation a lot. And yeah, I look forward to staying in touch. So, yes. And I, and I wish you all the best with your book, um, I hope it's picked up by lots of universities as a textbook to learn and to study Milwaukee and all the benefits that it has for our earth. And we really appreciate you being on our podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. Thanks, Hannah. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Bye.
The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.